This is section 32 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 32, Territorial Enterprise, March 1868. Territorial Enterprise, March 1, 1868. Mark Twain's Letters from Washington, number 8, Special Correspondence of the Enterprise. Washington, February 5, 1868. Office Hunting. Another man has arrived here who comes to get the berth of postmaster of San Francisco. This makes thirty-seven. The new applicant is not posted in office-seeking. He has not had a ripe experience. He is a good enough man, and may get the place, but it will cost him more trouble and vexation than he is promising himself, no doubt. He says he can't see that there is anything to be done but get the President to appoint and the Senate to ratify. Certainly that is all, truly enough. It was all that was to be accomplished by the thirty-six. He says he means to show the President what the Pacific Coast papers say about him, and he means also to tell him all about how the Post Office has heretofore been managed, and how he would improve that management the moment he got into office but he don't say he would swear by andrew johnson and labor for his behest alone which is much more important and he don't take into consideration that the moment he gets the president in his favor the senate will be down on him for it and that if he gains the senate's affections first the president will be down on him he only proposes to stay here a week he says he don't care anything about making an extended stay in washington he only wants to get the appointment and look around the great public buildings a little, and then he is off. They told him a story yesterday, but I do not know whether he saw the point of it or not. It was a little story that has been related with great spirit many thousands of times to office-seekers and claim-hunters who are only going to tarry a few days in Washington. It was about the man who stopped at Gadsby's. It was a long time ago, thirty long years ago, when Gadsby's was the great hotel. It was snowing. A gentleman in the very prime of life drove gallantly up to Gadsby's with a spanking coach and four. The servants ran out to put up his horses, but he said no, he was only going to stop an hour, and was going right on again. He only wished to get a little claim cashed at one of the departments, and so he blanketed his horses and hitched them and went away. A week after that he was still in Washington. He sold one of the horses. After a month or two had rolled by, he sold another. He said he did not wish to part with the others, because he was going back home as soon as his claim was cashed. Another month or two elapsed, and he sold the carriage and bought a light two-horse buggy with a small part of the money. About four months after that he sold one of the remaining horses, and after another month or so had gone by, he sold the buggy and bought a saddle. He said he could ride horseback well enough, considering that the roads were likely to be good enough for a week or two to come. But the lingering weeks dragged by, and finally he sold the saddle and concluded to ride bareback. At last, at last, he sold the other horse, and said that when his claim settled, he would walk. He is seventy years old now, poor old man, and his hair is white, his clothes are threadbare, and his head is bowed with many troubles. But he says it is not for long, he is only waiting a little while to get his claim settled, 
and then he is going home to see his people again and be happy. I think number 37 had better tie his horses up at Gatsby's. Mrs. Lincoln. It is reported that Mrs. Lincoln, long threatened with insanity, has really fallen a victim to it at last. The information comes by private letters from Chicago. She is said to be living in a house which is empty of furniture, she having sold it all. She labors under the delusion that she is going to come to want, and she sells everything she can lay her hands on. She is under guard of two old men. It is to be hoped that now, at least, this most unfortunate woman will be spared the pitiless slanders that have assailed her ever since she first entered the White House, and which even the crushing affliction of the murder of her husband was only sufficient to check for a little while. Can it be possible that she is deserted by her friends, and left to the sole charge of two old men? She whose friendship was so precious, and whose society was so coveted a few years ago, when a good word from her was half an aspiring man's ambition gained? Felix O'Byrne. I was striding up Broadway, in the face of a driving snowstorm, the other evening in New York, when a man seized me by the hand with a crushing grip, and said, "'How are you, Mark?' I said I was well enough. It was the weather that most invited solicitude. He said he was very, very glad to see me. I intimated that I was saturated with felicity to see him. But all the time I was wondering who the mischief the fellow was. He said he had always remembered me for saying a merciful word in print for him, when he was being so sorely hunted by the press of San Francisco. I never recollected saying a merciful word for anybody, and so I was still in suspense. Finally he said he wished I would call and see him at his offices. Offices sounded sumptuous, and I warmed to him. He was dealing in steamships, that is, he was engaged in furnishing compliments of passengers to them. Any business I might happen to have with the great steamer lines he would be happy to conduct for me. I knew the chirping voice then. I remembered the complacent countenance. I recalled the cheerful spirit that never yet had been bowed down by any possible weight of woe. I recognized the royal presence that always, by a destiny, clad in the outward semblance of poverty, was yet always a millionaire within. Felix O'Byrne. Who else in all the world would be smiling so blithely out from a gallant costume in ruins, and chirping about his offices and his steamships? Nothing can crush Felix O'Byrne finally and conclusively. Truth and Felix O'Byrne, crushed to earth, will rise again. Thus there is a marked similarity between Truth and Felix O'Byrne. I hereby locate a discovery claim of four hundred feet on this fact. Felix arrives on the Pacific coast in poverty. Shortly he is the honored contributor to Victorian newspapers and the guest of governors. Next he turns up in San Francisco, poor and accused of a grave offense against the laws. He is wearing diamonds next, and wielding a mighty influence in politics. Crushed again, degraded, disgraced, he disappears from public life, and it is discovered that the notes he gave for clothing and the baggage he left at first-rate hotels are equally fanciful as to value. Suspected by the police, worried by landlords of low boarding-houses, snubbed at third-rate free lunches, he blooms out all at once in a bright new uniform as a lieutenant in the 8th California Volunteers. When the mystery of the transformation is solved, 
it transpires that poor, despised, and shunned, the tireless energies of the man have been at work, steady and serenely as ever, and characteristically their aim was high. Let Felix's body be where it would, his soul was always in the clouds. It transpires that he has procured his soldierly position by means of a petition to the governor, signed by a number of the foremost gentlemen of San Francisco. The confidence, the persistence, the effrontery, and the dazzling successes of this man were bound to provoke some admiration in any soul but an infinitesimally mean one. But the newspapers showed Felix up immediately and it was plain to be seen that he was hardly the man to augment the respectability of the military service. He had the glory of a public military trial, though, and the distinction of being the head and front of the chief sensation of San Francisco for nine days in print, and the principal lion on the street when he went forth to show his uniform. Then he was dismissed, and forthwith sank down, 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 clear out of sight. He was out of sight a good while, and also out of mind. But not to stay. The first bubble that rose from the vasty depths of Fenianism brought Felix to the surface. He wrote, he lectured, he stumped the state, he aspired to lead the movement, and lo, in the fullness of time he bloomed again, this time as high chief editor of the Irish People newspaper. His career was brief but gorgeous. The Fenians got after him, and so did his subscribers. His creditors assaulted him again. He was busted. The waves of oblivion swept over him once more. He ceased to be talked about or even remembered. He sailed for the East, glorified with a parting blast from all the newspapers. After many days we heard of him achieving a precarious living by adventurous ways, unknown, uncourted, poverty-stricken. But so surely as the sun rises out of the night, so surely Felix O'Byrne blazes up out of obscurity in his appointed seasons. The news came that he was gone to Ireland, a lordly commissioner, empowered to disperse three millions of dollars among the Fenians. Everybody said, Alas, for the Fenians! He was in the States again when we heard of him next, with his periodical poverty upon him and next he was stumping the state of new york for a great political organization and spending its money with a lavish hand for felix was always free with money of his own and just as free with it when it belongs to his friends and afterwards we heard of him dining with the president of the united states and the great officers of the government a trusted adviser in the national policy and next he was leaving his baggage behind him again at the hotels and disappointing landlords as to the quality of its contents. His next year's career was more damaging to his good name than any that had gone before, perhaps, but it is not necessary to give the particulars of it. He is in the mire of poverty once more now, as to his body, but his regal soul dwells in offices, and hath dealings with no meaner matters than the nation's great steamship lines. But be patient, the phoenix O'Byrne will rise from his ashes yet again, and perch upon the temple of fame. That restless brain of his, so prolific in invention, and those busy hands of his, so cunning in execution, will create new surprises for the public, and a new celebrity and prosperity for himself. What a mine of splendid talent is in this man! What industry, what hopefulness, 
what perseverance, what ingenuity! Felix would have been a power in the land if his rare intellectual forces had been under the guiding control of principle. The lack of that one quality is his ruin. If I had any principle to spare, I would give it to him as cheerfully as to any man, for I bear him no malice. Stewart's Speech Senator Stewart made a long speech, and a very able one, on the vexed question of Reconstruction a couple of days ago. It is highly praised by Republicans. The whole speech was good, but one of the happiest points in it, perhaps, was towards its close, where he turned a favorite Democratic whine against that party, and sang its own tune to it with a different style of words. I speak of that everlasting whine about conciliating the South if there were not rather a properer call to conciliate the North. The North must suffer all the exasperating distresses of a war brought on by the South, yet stand by and see the fact that she can have anything to be conciliated about coolly ignored. I insert a paragraph from the speech. Again we are appealed to to conciliate the South. What further concessions are we called upon to make? Have we not tried conciliation from the foundation of the government? Have we not sacrificed justice and humanity to appease the vile passions, prejudice, and tyranny of slaveholders long enough? Are not our statute-books black with enactments to rivet the bonds of the slave? Are not the reports of the highest judicial tribunal disfigured with elaborate defenses of slaveholders' pretensions? Have we not submitted long enough to be slave-catchers for the South? Have we not bowed low enough in the dust in vain attempts to allay their royal displeasure? And, after all this, were we not required to make a sacrifice of life and property, unparalleled in modern history, to restrain the wrath of these haughty rebels, engendered only by the election of Abraham Lincoln as President of the United States? When I reflect upon the crimes committed because of his first election, and when I reflect upon the matter of his death because of his second election, and the fearful results that have followed the commission of that crime, I sometimes feel that the power of conciliation was then exhausted. Continuing the subject, the senator launches the following pregnant paragraph at the conciliation-shrieking democracy. It puts the matter altogether in a new light, and shows that the North has a little unsettled conciliation bill itself that needs liquidation. But we did not stop at the death of Abraham Lincoln. We tried further measures of conciliation, and offered oblivion for the past, and a full restoration in the Union on terms so liberal and magnanimous as to astonish the civilized world, and were again repulsed and defied and still the Democratic Party asks us to conciliate their rebel friends. They say it is impossible to harmonize the conflicting opinions in this country without conciliation. Let loyalty, then, be conciliated. Let something be done to soothe the bereaved and sorrow-stricken in the North. The passions of the human heart are not monopolized by those who sought to destroy the government— let the rebels make some atonement for the barbarities of Andersonville and Libby Prison. Let them at least give a pledge in the shape of a constitutional amendment that the widows and orphans of those who have fallen 
shall not be robbed of their pensions by repudiation of the federal debt through the instrumentality of rebel votes let the world see by their conduct and bearing that they were not victorious in the war and do not propose to humiliate our soldiers or make loyalty odious let the rebel press cease to discharge its venom in vile abuse of everything sacred to justice and honor when force is agitated let the strong be conciliated when the president betrays his party and as he tells us deliberates much upon the very serious and important question of resistance to the laws for the restoration of the union let the scarred veterans of grant sherman and sheridan be conciliated let those conservatives who cry keep the peace conciliate an insulted and outraged people those who suppress the rebellion will secure the fruits of victory peaceably if they can forcibly if they must let those who believe the people are actuated only by prejudice of race against race re-echo the rebel war-cry of negro equality negro supremacy and bend the pregnant hinges of the knee to haughty rebels for office and power but let them take warning that they will fall where buchanan fell that they will not only merit but receive the contempt of mankind hon mr extell member of the house from california has also placed himself on record upon reconstruction in a brief speech a day or two ago on the democratic side of the question and senator nye on the republican mark twain territorial enterprise march seventh eighteen sixty eight mark twain's letters from washington number nine special correspondence of the enterprise washington february eighteen sixty eight washington rascality right here in this heart and home and fountainhead of law in this great factory where are forged those rules that create good order and compel virtue and honesty in the other communities of the land rascality achieves its highest perfection here rewards are conferred for conniving at dishonesty but never for exposing it i know several cases that come under this head persons who have lived here longer and are better acquainted know of a great many i meet a man in the avenue sometimes whose history most residents of the city are acquainted with he was a clerk of high grade in one of the departments but he was a stranger and had no rules of action for his guidance except some effete maxims of integrity picked up in sunday school that snare to the feet of the unsophisticated and some unpractical moral wisdom instilled into him by his mother who meant well poor soul but whose teachings were morally bound to train up her boy for the poor-house well nobody told this stranger how he ought to conduct himself and so he went on following up those old maxims of his and acting so strangely in consequence that the other clerks began to whisper and nod and exchange glances of commiseration for they thought that his mind was not right that his brain had been touched by sorrow or hard fortune or something they observed that he never stole anything by and by they noticed that people who came to bribe him went away with an expression of disappointment in their faces finally it became apparent that he worked very hard and performed his tasks well and never shirked then they grew a little afraid of him they said he was very quiet and peaceable but then 
there was no telling when a lunatic was going to get one of those spells on him and scalp somebody. Finally the young man caught the high grand sachem of a great bureau perpetrating a flagrant swindle on the government. What did he do? Call for a division of the proceeds like an intelligent being? No. He went like an ignorant, besotted ass, and told the secretary of the department. The secretary of the department said he would look into the matter, and added, By the way, what business is it of yours? And the next thing the foolish young man knew, he found himself discharged and the intelligent sachem promoted. Then he went and told the senators from the state all about it, and asked them to get him another place, and they told him very properly that he had ruined himself, and that the official doors would all be closed against him now. He soon found out that that was the truth. He soon found out that you can't educate a boy in a Sunday school so as to make him useful to his country. That young man is idle to this day. Nobody has tried harder to get employment than he, but they all know his story, and they always refuse him. Everybody shuns him, because everybody knows he is afflicted with a loathsome leprosy, the strange foreign leprosy of honesty, and they are afraid they might catch it. There isn't any danger, maybe, but then they don't like to take any chances. Why, no one would ever imagine the absurdities that imbecile was guilty of before he discovered what a mistake his education had been. When he found out that they admit bad women into private rooms in one of the departments at all hours of the night, he went and told people about it, as if he had discovered some great thing. He was always carrying around some old stale piece of news like that, and when he found out that in the basement of another department they feed and lodge and pay salaries to a hundred and twenty New York election sharps who do nothing in the world, and that their names are set down in the record books not as Michael O'Flaherty, Dennis O'Flanagan, Patrick O'Doherty, and so on, but always simply as Fire and Lights. He went and told that also. And when he learned that one of the heads of the printing bureau hires bindery girls with a special reference to their unchastity, and that it was proved by government investigation, and duly published in a book that he sometimes sleeps with two of them at a time, and has the free run of his harem to choose from, and that he flourishes around Washington, now the best-dressed and gallantest officer the government has, he even thought that trifle a matter of sufficient importance to run around and talk about. Why, when the Tice meter was covertly foisted upon the public by the government, and every distiller in America peremptorily commanded to come forward and buy one at from $600 to $1,500, when a better machine could have been furnished for just half the money, he said he believed there was a $10 million swindle behind all that, and that certain high officials were privy to it, and reaping a vast profit from it which was no doubt true as gospel, but where is the wisdom in talking about these dangerous topics? I stopped in at a fine boarding-house last night to see a friend, and the landlady came in to collect her bill. She mentioned the fact that she had two handsomely furnished apartments which she would like to rent to someone. I said I knew of several senators and congressmen who would be glad to have them. She said she would not venture to risk that kind of people. I thought she was jesting, but she was not. 
a gent of a senator had called and engaged those rooms for him two months before he was to arrive with the understanding that he was to occupy them during the whole session he came and said they were perfectly satisfactory after a while he wanted some more furniture added which was done at a cost of two hundred dollars he stayed two months said he was still perfectly satisfied with the apartments and could have no desire to leave them but for the fact that some friends had taken up their residence in another part of the town and he wished to be near them so he was going to move he did not deny that the agent's contract was duly authorized but he said have you any writing to show for it she hadn't he said well and left the law does not permit members of congress to be sued so there was no redress the breached contract had to remain breached she rented the rooms to a territorial delegate but refused to let him have them unless he would take them for the remainder of the session because she had a chance at the moment to rent them to a gentleman for a month or two and she would rather have a gentleman than a congressman because congressmen kept such late hours and burned so much fuel and gas he occupied the rooms twenty-four hours expressed himself entirely pleased with them but had found lodgings which were cheaper and would do him as well and he moved he moved first when nobody was watching and said that afterward he did not deny his contract either but refused to fulfill it or give any redress the law cannot touch the delegate isn't this a curious state of things isn't it refreshing to see men break laws so coolly whose sole business is law-making i wonder if all the congressmen are so unreliable if they are i think i could subscribe to this landlady's suggestive remark that it is pleasanter to have a gentleman around than a congressman i said i would be glad to have her general opinion of washington probity and she said her opinion was that it did not exist in a very great degree she believed that the whole city was polluted with peculation and all other forms of rascality debauched and demoralized by the wholesale dishonesty that prevails in every single department of the washington government great and small she said that false weights were used in the market the grocery stores the butcher shops and all such places the meat a butcher sells you for seven pounds can never be persuaded to weight more than five and a half in your kitchen scales at home a grocer's pound of butter usually weights only three-quarters in scales that are unconscious and have no motive to deceive they paint rocks and add them to your coal they put sand in your sugar lime in your flour water in your milk turpentine in your whiskey clothes-pins in your sausages turnips in your canned peaches they will rather cheat you out of ten cents than make a dollar out of you by honest dealing that was her opinion what little i have seen of washington in the short time i have been here leads me to think it must be correct the delegation senator nye is absent temporarily i see by the telegrams that he was to be one of the speakers at a grand grant mass meeting at cooper institute a night or two ago mr ashley is attending to his duties as usual in the house senator stewart is working hard on nevada matters of various kinds particularly and on everything of importance that comes before the senate in a general way he is about the hardest working man in congress i believe 
Mr. Stewart has just reported back from committee a bill to straighten out all the public land entanglements in Nevada, which will place Nevada's lands in such a shape that she can handle them with facility instead of finding her hands constantly tied by disabling rulings of the Interior Department. Stewart's School of Mines has received high commendations from all persons interested in mining interests, and there appears to be no opposition to it of consequence in Congress. It is very likely to pass shortly. Somebody got up a counter-bill to establish a Bureau of Mines in Washington instead, and put it under the control of that poor, decrepit, bald-headed, played-out, antediluvian old red sandstone formation, which they call the Smithsonian Institute. What the mischief would that drowsing old national ass do with as live a thing as a mining interest? Just as usual, it would go after the Paleozoic formation, and if it found that there wasn't any Paleozoic formation about first-class mines, it wouldn't ever care a cent about those mines. It is a cussed old Paleozoic formation itself, and has no business going around her in its shroud among living men at this day of the world. Its Bureau of Mines died early. Mines! The idea of the Smithsonian Institute meddling with mines, and with shafts and tunnels and whims, and with swarms of workmen, and with the stir and bustle and blasphemy of teamsters, and with steam-engines and the clatter and crash of desperate forty-stamp mills, the idea of a toothless old grandmother going to war. Read what it is that this venerable Paleozoic formation is worrying itself about now, from its last annual report. Questions in Issue 1. What classifications may be adopted for the discoveries made in Belgium and neighboring countries of objects anterior to the Carlovingian era? 2. Is the ogival style to be considered as the natural and complete development of the Roman style? 3. What is conclusively known respecting the different kinds of horseshoes found in Gallo-Roman mines and the manner of using them? 4. Should churches be made to front toward the east? 5. To determine the age of objects in Alex from their degree of elaboration. If they gave the Dreaming Institute supervision of our minds out there, it would spend the first twenty-five years prospecting for Gallo-Roman horseshoes, and the next twenty-five trying to find out how the Gallo-Romans of the rabbit-skin robe and the grasshopper diet used such jackass shoes as they might come across in abandoned shafts on the divide. Let her stick to her palazoic formation. That is her best hold. The question on the admission of Mr. Thomas of Maryland to a seat in the Senate has been the main subject of debate for some time now, next to Reconstruction. Thomas was always a rebel in opinion and sympathy, but as he couldn't go into the field himself, he gave his son a hundred dollars and started him to the Confederacy to join its armies. These things will in all probability send him back to his constituents minus his senatorial seat. Mr. Stewart has made two good speeches on the question. An extract from his last will not be out of place here. Mr. President, I do not wish to detain the Senate or to prolong this debate, but I desire to make a single remark. I wish to ask the Senate how this gentleman would appear if he were defending his property from a suit in the South for confiscation. 
they confiscated in the South the property of men who were loyal to this government. Now let me see where he would stand before a rebel court in such a case, or before a rebel Congress, if he were playing there for admission to a seat. Suppose he had moved over there, and was elected to their Congress, and they had a rule preventing anyone who had been faithful to this government from taking a seat with them. What kind of a plea could he make then? Could he not remind them of the fact that when the war commenced he took his position with Jeff Davis, with Cobb, with Toombs, and the rest of them, that there was no power in this government to sustain itself, and so declared in a letter in which he resigned an important office, so as to give his endorsement to the movement they were about to inaugurate? Could he not say, I associated with your patriotic leaders, I was a friend in the darkest hour of the rebellion of Jefferson Davis. I, too, resigned a high office under the government of the United States to give aid and countenance to your movement. Could he not say that after the rebellion had been inaugurated, after he had resigned this high office, he went to Maryland and there associated with rebels, that he gave them his moral support, that he denied any sympathy or aid to the Union men of this state? that he refused even to vote under the Yankee government, that he refused to take any of their oaths of loyalty, that he refused to recognize the late United States in any form. Could he not say further, I do more than that, being myself past the age to do military duty, I furnish my only son to aid you in gaining your independence. Although poor, I gave him one hundred dollars, all the money I could raise, to send him, my only son, to you, to aid you in achieving your independence. Will you, therefore, take from me my property? Was I disloyal to you? Have I not aided you? Would not the argument be answerable? But it is said by the senator from Pennsylvania that we must tolerate differences of opinion. Sir, there are some differences of opinion that we cannot tolerate and will not tolerate. We will not tolerate any man in the opinion that this government has no power to maintain its own existence. We will not tolerate the opinion that the Union ought to be dissolved. We will not tolerate secession. We will not tolerate the opinion that secession is a Constitution right. We fought against this doctrine, and we fought against those who acted upon it. The verdict of the war has established, if it has established any fact, that no such opinion shall exist in this country. THE POSTMASTER That candidate for the postmastership in San Francisco I spoke of in my last has tied his horse up at Gadsby's. Well, I thought he would. IMPEACHMENT It is dead for good now, I suppose. It promised so fairly two months ago that everybody boldly turned profit and said it would certainly succeed, but it didn't. Nobody's prophecies concerning Washington matters ever come out right. Isaiah himself would be a failure here. Honorable Thad Stevens, the bravest old ironclad in the Capitol, fought hard for impeachment, even when he saw that it could not succeed. He is not choice in his language when he speaks on this subject, concerning his fellow committeemen and Congress generally. He simply says the whole tribe of them are damned cowards. It is the finest word-painting any congressional topic has produced this session. 
Reciprocity The Sandwich Island Reciprocity Treaty, having been reported back favorably from the Committee on Foreign Relations, remains now to be acted upon by the Senate. General McCook has visited every senator and talked with him, and almost all of them have expressed themselves satisfied with the treaty and willing to vote for it. As he has done all he can possibly do for the treaty, and as he is necessarily tired of Washington by this time, General McCook proposes to leave for San Francisco and the islands in the steamer of March 1st. Miscellaneous the man who is here contesting Honorable Mr. Hooper's seat as delegate from Utah is a Mr. McGrorty, who was run for delegate as a practical joke. McGrorty got 105 votes, and Hooper got a little over 15,000. This small discrepancy don't worry McGrorty, however. He says the 15,000 would have voted for him, but were afraid of the bishops of the church. The fact is, the contest will never come off. One hates to make a positive statement about Washington affairs, but I venture to make that one, because McGrorty did not serve a notice of contest on Hooper within thirty days after the election, stating the grounds of the contest. United States law makes this imperative. Congress will hardly go behind its own acts. Therefore, I have ventured to say that the contesting in Congress of this seat is a thing that will hardly get further than an inquiry by a committee, and die." hay. Hay is somewhat cheaper than a week or two ago. It is now retailed at five cents per pound, and is to be had by the wagon-load in this city at about seventy-five dollars or eighty dollars per ton. Several loads of hay of an excellent quality arrived here yesterday from St. Clair's Station on the overland route. Territorial Enterprise. In my time, hay items were a great moral standby. I thought you might make some use of this one. I have known Dan de Quill to follow a hay-wagon all over town, and write a new lie about it on every corner, and make twelve distinct items about the same wagon, and fetch it from every locality in the territory of Nevada from which a hay-wagon could by any possibility hail from. The driver's name might be stated correctly enough, in the first one, to be Smith, but the eleven aliases that marched their disastrous course through the succeeding ones infallibly caused that driver to be looked upon with the gravest suspicion forever after. Wood. Firewood is at present rather scarce. It sells in this city at twenty-five dollars per cord for washoe, and thirty dollars for nut-pine. It is a little cheaper, so businessmen say, to buy of the Chinese wood-peddlers. Territorial Enterprise. In my time, also, when the morning inquest failed, and other matters were scarce, it was considered good jurisprudence to fall back on wood. Wood is a subject that is able to stir the souls of any community. Wood is a thing that can always be safely elaborated. If I had all the wood-piles of my conscience that I stole from Daggett and Tom Fitch, with no other object than that Dan might discourse learnedly to the public, about the damnable quality of the wood that was being imposed upon an outraged public by the satraps of Washoe Valley, I would be a happier man than I am. I do not know what satraps is, and I do not suppose that Dan knew what satraps was either, but he always considered it to be a crusher anyway. He always regarded it as a word to be resorted to only in the extremest emergencies. Rough 
Several large quartz wagons upset yesterday on the road leading from this city to Gold Hill, but we heard of no accident to life or limb, nor serious damage to any of the wagons. Territorial Enterprise I am just as well satisfied as I am of anything that that disaster never occurred. In my time it was never looked upon as any trick at all to turn over a lot of quartz wagons on the divide to fill out a local column with. To find a petrified man, or break a stranger's leg, or cave an imaginary mine, or discover some dead Indians in a Gold Hill tunnel, or massacre a family at Dutch Nick's, were feats and calamities that we never hesitated about devising when the public needed matters of thrilling interest for breakfast. The seemingly tranquil Enterprise office was a ghastly factory of slaughter, mutilation, and general destruction in those days. These old Enterprise fabrications about wood and hay and suffering quartz wagons read more pleasantly to me now than any amount of poetry, and when I come across items about Jack Perry and Birdsall and Steve Gillis and those other highway robbers who practice upon unoffending traveling showmen on the divide, they are full of interest to me, especially if it appears that the parties have got into any trouble. I do not see their names often now, which encourages me to think they have pretty much all got into the penitentiary at last, maybe. I was at a banquet given to the Honorable Society of Good Fellows last night, and it was a particularly cheerful affair. I mention this subject more particularly because I wish to introduce in this connection what I consider to be a genuine, uncompromising, and unmitigated first-rate notice. Let the Washington Express be your model in matters of this kind hereafter, the question being on the fourth regular toast. Fourth. Woman. All honor to woman, the sweetheart, the wife, the delight of the fireside by night and by day, who never does anything wrong in her life except when permitted to have her own way. To this toast the renowned humorist and rightist Mark Twain responded, and it is superfluous to say that while he stood upon the floor declaiming for the fair divinities, all that banqueting crew laid down with laughter. His sliding scene, his trials and tribulations, those he had paid for and not, his valentine, his sublime inspirations and humorous deductions set the very table in a roar. He's a funny fellow, and no mistake, and blessed indeed were the G.F.s with the honor of his company. There isn't anything very mild about that, is there? I hadn't a just appreciation of how infernally funny I had been in that speech until I read that notice. I had an idea that the New York Herald and the Tribune had complimented me fully up to my deserts several times, but I guess not. I like the wild enthusiasm of the Express better. It was a very, very jolly entertainment throughout. I observe one thing on this side that is as it should be. At such banquets as I have attended here and in New York, I noticed that among the regular toasts they always had a couple for the Pacific Coast and the Press of the Pacific, and that they gave them prominence. To the one last named, Lord Fairfax of the New Orleans Picayune responded in the happiest terms last night. Mark Twain Territorial Enterprise, March 13, 1868 
Mark Twain's Letters from Washington, Number 10, Special Correspondence of the Enterprise. The Grand Coup d'État, Washington, February 22nd. This birthday of Washington was historical before. It is doubly so now. Yesterday the news spread abroad over the town that the President had sent General Thomas to eject Secretary Stanton from the War Office and assume the duties of the post himself. It was an open defiance of Congress, a kingly contempt for long-settled forms and customs, a reckless disregard of the law itself. It was the first time, in the history of the nation, that the chief magistrate had presumed to dismiss a cabinet officer without the consent of the Senate while that body was in session. The excitement was intense, and it steadily augmented as night approached. Hotels and saloons were crowded with men, who moved restlessly about, talking vehemently and accompanying their words with emphatic gestures. The sidewalks were thronged with hurrying passengers, and everywhere the sound of trampling feet and a discord of angry voices was in the air. Old citizens remembered no night like this in Washington since Lincoln was assassinated. Strangely enough, the men who should have been most concerned about the storm were the only souls that rode serenely above it. Mr. Seward and the President sat at a state dinner in the White House, cheery and talkative among distraught and pensive guests. General Grant was at the theater. Stanton made his bed in the peaceful war office, and General Thomas capered gaily among fantastic maskers at a carnival fandango. Meanwhile the tempest swept the continent on the wings of the telegraph. The Senate sat at night, and multitudes flocked to the Capitol to stare and listen. The House resolved to make Saturday a working day for once, and both bodies decreed that, for the first time since Washington's death, Congress should transact business on the anniversary of his birthday. This morning impeachment was in everybody's mouth. Thomas's arrest was discussed in the streets and in the hotels. Stanton was lauded by Republicans for sleeping in the war office and holding the political fortress, and cursed by the Democrats. That Honorable Judd and Schenck watched with him till 3 a.m., and that Honorable Thayer remained all night, brought those gentlemen a fair share, likewise, of the praise and the blame. By nine o'clock, full three hours before the sitting of Congress, long processions of men and women were wending their way toward the Capitol in the nipping winter air, and all vacant spaces about the doors were packed with people waiting to get in. When I reached there at noon, it was difficult to make one's way through the wide lobbies and passages, so great was the throng. There was not a vacant seat in the galleries, and all the doorways leading to them were full of tiptoeing men and women, with a swarm of anxious citizens at their backs, eagerly watching for such scanty crumbs of comfort as chance opportunities of glancing between their shoulders or under their arms. I went immediately to the reporter's gallery. It was about full, too, and excited doorkeepers and sentinels were challenging all comers and manfully resisting an assaulting party of men, women, and children who were the fathers, brothers, wives, uncles, aunts, cousins, friends, schoolmates, admirers of editors, correspondents, reporters, members of Congress, cabinet officers, and the President of the United States, and consequently they demanded to know why they couldn't go into the reporter's gallery. 
That was it. Why couldn't they? Some people are unreasonable, and some don't know anything. These parties belong pretty exclusively to the one or the other of these classes. They were all, every one of them, going to have the doorkeeper discharged. They said so. Surely such exceedingly influential people would not threaten what they could not perform. But they did not get in. But others had got seats who were not strictly of the press, I suspect, twenty perhaps, among them several ladies. They were a good deal in the way, but they did not mind that. I was glad to see that it did not discommode them. The scene within was spirited. It was unusual, too. The great galleries presented a sea of eager, animated faces. Above these, more were amassed in the many doorways. Below, in the strong light, a few members walked nervously up and down outside the rows of seats. A very few were writing, telegrams, no doubt. The great majority had their heads together in groups and couples, talking earnestly. In every countenance strong feeling was depicted. A member from Maine was making a speech about a patent cooking-stove, but never a soul was listening to him. Some said the stove business was gotten up by the Democrats to stave off impeachment. Others said the Radicals got it up to gain time and give the Reconstruction Committee a chance to make up its report. Everybody waited impatiently, and watched the door sharply. They wanted to see that committee come. By and by Mr. Payne entered, and there was a buzz. But it was a disappointment. He only spoke a word to a colleague and went out again. The tiresome stove-man finished. It was a relief to the galleries, who somehow seemed to look upon this trifling about cooking-stoves as a fraud upon themselves, and a sort of affront as well, thrust forward as it was, at a time when any idiot ought to know that impeachment was the order of the day. No committee yet. Something must be done. Motion to adjourn, in honor of Washington. Amendment, to read Washington's farewell address. Both were voted down. A's and A's called on both, and the long, tedious, monotonous calling of names and answering followed. The vote was no. Everybody knew what it would be before. Before the roll call was finished, Botwell came in, sensation. Afterwards, at intervals, Bingham, sensation. Payne, sensation. Several other committee men, and finally, Thad Stevens himself, super-extraordinary sensation. The haggard, cadaverous old man dragged himself to his place and sat down. There was a soul in his sunken eyes, but otherwise he was a corpse that was ready for the shroud. He held his precious impeachment papers in his hand, signed at last. In the eleventh hour his coveted triumph had come. Richelieu was not nearer the grave. Richelieu was not stirred up by a sterner pride when he came from his bed of death to crown himself with his final victory. The buzzing and whispering died out, and an impressive silence reigned in its stead. The speaker addressed the galleries in a clear voice that reached the farthest recesses of the house, and warned the great concourse that the slightest manifestation of approbation or disapprobation of anything about to be said would be followed by the instant expulsion of the offending person from the galleries. He read the rules at some length upon the subject, and charged the sergeant-at-arms and his subordinates to perform their duty without hesitation or favor. 
then mr stevens rose up and in a voice which was feeble but yet distinctly audible because of the breathless stillness that hung over the great audience like a spell he read the resolution that was to make plain the way for the impeachment of the president of the united states the words that foreshadowed so mighty an event sent a thrill through the assemblage but there was no manifestation of the emotion save in the sudden lighting of their countenances they ventured upon no applause nor upon any expression of dissent mr brooks of new york took the floor and in a frenzied speech protested against impeachment and threatened civil war if the measure carried mr bingham made an able speech in favor of the movement the ball was fairly opened now and speech followed speech from two in the afternoon until almost midnight during all that time the galleries were filled with people and their excited interest showed no symptoms of abatement the house adjourned to meet at ten a m on monday instead of at noon it has been a tremendous day the nation has seen few that were so filled with ominous signs and bodings of disaster when it was moved to-day to read washington's farewell address mr ingersoll inquired of a neighbor if it would not be more appropriate to read andrew johnson's farewell address in this connection i will remark that the following was picked up in one of the lobbies it was entitled andrew johnson's farewell address soft you a word or two before you go i have done the state some damage and they know it no more of that i pray you in your letters when you shall these unlucky deeds relate speak of me as i am some things extenuate but set down naught in malice then must you speak of one that ruled not wisely nor too well of one easily jealous and being wrought perplexed in the extreme did like the base judean throw a pearl away richer than all his tribe how the delegations from the pacific coast will stand on impeachment no man can tell till monday you know as well as i that the oregon delegation will be likely to favor it that the nevada and california senators will be likely to favor it that ashley and higby in the house will be likely to favor it and johnson and axtell be apt to oppose but these gentlemen cannot be seen to-night and it would be hard to guess what effect the flood of telegrams may have that will roll in upon us to-morrow from all parts of the country mark twain end of section thirty two